This ad is organised and funded by Sanofi's Together Against RSV campaign. You might be thinking, what is RSV Zoe? And I've just been learning all about it. So let me tell you. Respiratory syncytial virus, easy for me to say, or RSV as it's more commonly known, is a really common virus that causes infection in the lower part of the respiratory system in babies and children. In fact, 90% of all children, by the time they reach two, will unfortunately experience a respiratory virus. But the good news is that most RSV illnesses are mild and clear upon their own. But unfortunately, some cases can be more serious. Bronchitis and pneumonia are types of these infections that you might have heard of that are often caused by RSV. In fact, when Jessie was little, about eight months, she had quite severe bronchitis. And I do wish I'd known more about it and how to manage it before it happened. So if you want to get yourself clued up on RSV, what it is, what can be done to prevent it and how to spot the signs and symptoms so that you can be better prepared with your children, then you can visit Sanofi's Together Against RSV website for further information www.togetheragainstrsv.com and there you'll find loads of helpful advice about infant RSV. Hey everyone, it is Zoe Blasky here and welcome to this very special end of year episode of Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of modern motherhood with more ease, purpose and self-awareness. A very special episode for you this week because I don't have a guest to introduce. Instead, I'm going to introduce you to another podcast host, the lovely Steph Douglas, host of Don't Buy Her Flowers podcast. And in this special episode, Steph and I have teamed up to wrap up and reflect on the year together. So we got together to share some of our favorite moments from Motherkind and Don't Buy Her Flowers. So you'll hear from the incredible people we've spoken to this year, but you'll also hear our thoughts on each other's chats and how those guests have impacted us. Steph is not only an incredible business leader, she founded the thoughtful gift company, Don't Buy Her Flowers. She is also a brilliant podcast host and thinker on modern motherhood. I hope you love this special end of year episode. And as it is the 22nd of December, have an amazing Christmas. Here it is. I'm so excited about recording this. Me too. It's good to talk to other people. That's it. I feel like podcasters, do you feel like this? I get into my head, get into my zone, do my episodes. And it's just really nice to come together with you because I love your podcast. I think we're quite similar in our mission and our style. And you've just hit your one year anniversary, right? Just hit one year, but we haven't done as many episodes. I don't release really, really regularly. And it's kind of, I think we're on 30 something episodes. But in terms of the conversation around motherhood and equality and all those things that we both do, I feel like I've learned masses in the last year that I would probably speak quite differently about it now than if this was a year ago. Whereas I think you've probably been on this journey for longer than I have. I think you need a mission. People say, how have you been doing it for so long? It's genuinely, I just feel so unbelievably passionate. What would you describe as your mission, Zoe? To support modern mothers. I feel like that is just 
way too much conversation around parenting and little ones in particular and, you know, formula and breast and naughty steps and all of that. And useful. It isn't like it is now. When I started, there was literally nothing talking about the mother's experience. And I found it, you know, and I know you've talked about this as well, like literally bombshell in my life. Overnight, my relationship felt like, I was like, we're going to break up. This feels Mm. so horrendous. I experienced rage. And I know you talk about that loads. I'd never experienced before. I thought I was going mad. My body changed. My identity changed. I quit my corporate life. I was like, this has no meaning anymore. And I was really scrabbling around for like validation in this experience. And I couldn't find it. So I thought, well, I'll do what any sane person would do. So I'll talk about it publicly. <laughs> I'll talk about it publicly and try and learn on the way. And I've always said that, like, it really is like me, like you just shared, you know, I'm literally just learning from these incredible people that I've managed to beg often for years to come on and just try and learn because I just felt like there's this massive chasm. And that is part of the problem. Like, I don't think mother's experience is cared about enough at all on a societal Mm -hmm. level. So it's not surprising there's this huge chasm of information that things that we should just know about like that word matrescence I was like how does everyone not know about this word like Mm. it explains everything the biggest thing that I think I'm starting to understand that makes sense of kind of probably your conversations but definitely all of mine as well is that we are this kind of weird guinea pig generation who are still trying to do all the things that are mothers did and that we saw and that we see still all the time in films and music and books and everything. We're trying to do that, but we're also trying to move towards equality. And they don't gel together at all, but we're trying to do both. So it leads to all these massive clashes of all the things you've just said about your identity and your body and your relationship and your friendship, like all of it and work. There's no one guiding us. No one's figured out how to do that. So I think these conversations are really important, but the thing to take from them and what would be good to talk about today is what do you then do with that information? Like, How do you then have those conversations in your life, whether that's with your friends and supporting your other friends who are mums or whatever, but also like with your partner? And that's sometimes really challenging because it would be easier not to. It would be easier just to sit and be a bit pissed off in lots of ways than to say, actually, I want this to work and we're going to have to really tackle both of our belief systems and the way we've been brought up and all that stuff to get there. Yeah, it's really hard, particularly as, I don't know about you, but Guy and I had never, re- we even went through pre-marriage therapy, counselling. We never talked about things like who was going to work when we had children, what was going to be the financial split, where are we going to have joint account? We never talked think- about any of that practice. Do you think that's stuff? just because you thought we'll slip into almost without thinking about it? You were like, well, I'll be at home. Same. I hadn't thought about no, it. No, I don't then, think so. Because I was more ambitious than Guy when right. I met him and I earned more than him when I met him. That's changed. Yeah, I now. did. I did as well. Obviously, <laughs> because of the motherhood penalty, that's changed. Yeah, I think I was just unconscious to it. Honestly, I just thought, well, it can't be that hard because look, there's all these people who are mothers who are walking mm. around there all smiling. So it can't be that hard. Well, I was just unconscious. That was yeah. the truth. I definitely was like, I'll go to part time. When I had my first baby, I was like, I'll go back part time. So I did slip into all that would automatically, but we never had a conversation about would Doug take any parental leave apart from that two weeks or whatever. But I didn't want him to because that's also part of the tricky bit is like, I don't think equality is that women leap back to work straight after having kids and, you know, we can do it all isn't the answer either because 
you have to kind of accept that if you're the person who's physically having the baby, you might need to take some time. And again, that jars with everything. And that's, I think, where we get all that resentment because it's like, so this is on me. And how do you work that out so that it doesn't leave you really cross? We slipped into really traditional roles at the beginning until I kind of came out fighting and was like, and then every now and then I'm like, I'm so sorry that you've married me and I'm not just going to like, we'll let you go. Okay, so I'll go off to work now and I'll just sit at home because I think it makes it harder. We did the same for a while. And actually I have a lot of for my mother-in-law to thank because she has never really done much domestically. And my mum said to me, I think when I first met Guy and I moved in with him, she said, I'm not going to give you any advice at all. She said, but I'm going to say this one thing to you. Never, ever, ever iron his shirt. And I was like, what? She's <laughs> like, because you're setting up a standard that that's your job, that mm-hmm. you'll continue to do that. She's like, never, ever, ever do it. I was like, okay, cool. I don't know what she was talking about. Honestly, I thought she was mental. And now I completely get what she was on about. Yeah. Like, don't get into that expectation. That I, used to, I used to iron shirts. I used to make him put little packed lunches and they'd be quite elaborate, like different condiment, different fillings, nice breads. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing because he doesn't get that now. But again, that's also confusing for them. And his mum, like his sister has said to me before, oh, mum completely did everything for us, but especially for him. So when he leaves his pants on the floor, there's an expectation we actually talk about that. He's in no way expecting me to pick up his pants, but someone just used to do that. And that's probably a really good point to put in if you have children. And especially if you have sons, don't pick up their pants. If you want for them to grow up and remember that someone else is going to have to pick them up if they don't. Dr. Becky, in one of the clips that we're going to talk about, talks to this a bit, this idea of selfless parenting and how that then perpetuates down the generations. Should we get started? Yeah. So what we've done dear listeners, is we've each chosen three clips from our podcast from this year that we love and we know that you guys loved everyone listening. So we're going to play those and then Steph and I are going to chat about what we learn from each of those episodes. It's been quite hard actually choosing just three. I found it really, really hard. So hopefully the ones that I've chosen resonate. And the first one is with Dr. Rick Hansen. Now he is not a household name. He's not someone that lots of people might have heard of, but in my space, which is the sort of, I guess you'd call it the personal growth space, even though I hate that phrase, I'm yet to find a better one. He's massive. He's written, I think, about 15 books. He's a PhD in psychology and he's a fellow at Berkeley and has been for God, like 40 years. He's incredible. And what is amazing about Dr. Rick Hansen is 20 years ago, he wrote this book called Mother Nurture because he saw his wife, who he said was smart, resilient, really robust. He says she's robust. She she was like a strong woman. Mm -hmm. He saw her after two kids, just slowly withering away, essentially. And he described her at the end as like completely depleted by the time her two kids reached five. And so he got absolutely fascinated in what was happening. And he wrote this book, which at the time was really groundbreaking. And also, I think a little bit like, why are you writing about mothers? So I was so excited to chat to him. And the first question I asked him was, what's changed? And he said, nothing, not a lot, not enough in 20 years, which was mind blowing to me. And then I asked him about guilt and he had such an interesting take on it around standards. 
Now, let's be really clear. So what is guilt about? Basically, there's some standard. And then there's the perception that we're falling short of that standard. And then based on that shortfall, that gap, there are feelings or attitudes like remorse or guilt or shame or regret. But it boils down to the gap, the shortfall between a standard and performance, between ideal and actual. So then the question becomes, what are truly fair standards? And what is your actual performance in reference to those standards? I just love that idea that guilt is where we think we should be up here and actually we're down here and guilt is that gap. Because Mm. I don't know about you, Steph, but sometimes I feel guilty for giving the kids chicken goujons again. And I'm like, well, who decided that my standard was that Mm. they were going to have organic homemade meals? I never decided that, ever. Mm. So I'm absorbing this societal idea from Instagram, from books, from maybe my own mother. And that's creating this standard, which isn't mine. And then I'm falling short of it and feeling guilty. And I just love how he's like, define your own standard. And then later in the episode... He says in the Olympics, if you are a decathlete, so you are doing 10 different things that you are having to get competent in, you would not measure that decathlete against the same standard as someone who's just doing one. Mm-hmm. He was like, mothers, they're not even decathletes. I don't even know what the word is for 20 or 30 things that we have to get competent in every single day, if you think mm. about it, what we're doing. Mm. He's like, we have to lower our standards. But more than that, we have to have the societal support to enable us to do all those things and not burn out. On the standards thing, I think one of the reasons why if you have more children, I think if you quite often will hear mothers with more kids say, they look like they're coping amazingly, right? And you're like, God, they've got three, four, five kids. How are they doing that? And someone who's got one child is like, oh God. But I think that's something that in time, you realize that probably after a really awful time, you cannot keep those standards. So my standards are quite low. Like my house is regularly a complete tip. And sometimes that tips me over the edge into feeling really anxious because it's I want to be in control of it and everything else feels a bit out of control. But the standards of being everything and remembering everything, like when I forgot it was non-uniform day, instead of Frank off in his little uniform, it was fine. But I would have really beat myself up if that was Buster, my firstborn. And there's seven years between them. So I can really see that difference where I have lowered my expectations because I had to. And then I've gone, oh, this is better because nothing bad happens. They're similar kids. Those things that like whether they had goujons three times a week or something, that's not the things that make them who they are. And that's not the things that I need to feel guilty about. It's a bit like working out what success looks like. For someone, they might look at you and go, she's been doing a podcast for five years. Great. If you want that to be what you want to do with your life, same as in business, I'll see people and think, oh my God, they're doing this thing or they're turning over 10 million. But what did they have to do to get to that? And do I want that? What does my success look like? And I've always said like with the business, it is to still have a life and still have balance and still be around for the kids. Like we don't have, and this is our choice, we don't have a nanny. Doug and I work it out. and that's a choice we make. So I can't then also be gutted that I'm not at everything. When I'm doing coaching, which I do alongside the podcast like every day, basically, I say this sort of probably 10 times a day, <laughs> define what is actually important to you. 
there's some cool coaching exercises like where I get people to write their 80th birthday party speech or I get people to imagine they're their adult children mm-hmm. reflecting back on their childhoods or you're 85 and you're reflecting back on your time as a mother. What is actually important to you? And everyone says the same sort of thing, that my kids feel connected, that I felt I could enjoy my life. I don't feel stressed all the time. And it's like, okay, so if that's actually important to you, then you you can drop, you can, yeah, start then designing your life and your days. And this is why it's like, it's okay if, you know, my kids eating organic meals every single day is not important to me. If it was important to me, they would do it, right? Because I would make that happen. It's not important to me. What is important to me is connection. So I make sure I'm the one that picks them up from school every day. And Mm -hmm. now I put my phone away between three and six because that's what's top of my priority list. And I feel like that's what Rick was saying a lot in that episode. And a lot of guests have taught me that idea. We cannot expect ourselves to operate at that higher level across all areas. We will be burnt out, guilty, gibbering messes. So the other thing that I really took from it was that he says, and he's a doctor, so I trust him, that this is a really tough time to be a mother. So he talked about it takes a village and that whole idea. But the thing that he said that really resonated was he said, like, before us, there were millions and millions of years where communities worked together bringing up children. And that went on for millions of years. And the ancestors before that went on for millions of years. And then in a very short space of time, we've completely changed how society works. And we have these tiny little bubbles, which is our immediate family, pretty much, and the way that we work. And I just thought when he was saying like, that is why this feels hard, because it is. And the chronic stress that you're under when you have this sustained impact of all these things that are going on in motherhood. I just thought that's quite reassuring, isn't it? Because you can think otherwise, especially if you're quite new to it, just think, why am I finding this so hard? And the truth is, because it is, and probably everyone's finding it hard. You're right. It's such a good point. It's only in the last 100 years, which is a dot, you know, it's not even a dot, you wouldn't even see it in terms of how we raise our families now in these little nuclear families away from communities. And also don't forget, it's only our generation of mothers that have also got a bloody smartphone in our pocket which is distracting, addictive, gives us, you know, things to compare ourselves against. And when people talk about social media, oh, but the good bit about it is the connectivity. It's like, but we didn't used to need that when we actually had a community of people around us. So it is good, obviously, in the world we're in now, it gives you something. But we didn't need that when we were sat around with our family and our friends all living around the corner. And I've done some studying on this because I'm fascinated by it, but like our brains aren't actually designed to be able to handle the amount of content and connections that we have. What used to happen is a tribe would get to a hundred and then it would break off into another because that's all we could handle. It's just incredible. We could talk, maybe we just do a separate episode on this. Yeah, that is it. I think Um, it, it is. It's a big conversation. One I chose is Dr. Karen. So this is actually my most downloaded episode and the one I get the most messages about. This is the one. So the sex one. Okay. So this is Dr. Karen Gurney. So we know that for women particularly, experiencing a drop in spontaneous desire, and I can't stress this enough, is completely normal in a long-term relationship. What that means is it's normal to never feel like sex out of the blue ever in a long-term relationship. It's not a sexual problem. It's not a problem with your desire. It's how desire functions after you've been with someone a period of time. 
it's really common for women to feel that they're broken and also to, to I've seen plenty of women who've drawn parallels with this and said, well, it must be me because this hasn't happened in every long-term relationship that I've been in. I felt like sex at the beginning and then I'm just not interested. And I'm like, well, the pattern is the long-term relationship, not necessarily anything. Um, as much as we all try and conform to monogamy, it's not really that well suited to humans in terms of our sexual interests. So there are plenty of reasons why that happens. It's super important because... Of course, there's variety between women and we have plenty of women who do experience higher levels of spontaneous desire and continue to in a long-term relationship. But there was a large-scale piece of research which showed us that actually a significant majority of women, when asked, how often do you feel like sex out of the blue, said either never Mm -hmm. or very, very rarely. And she talks about sexual currency and the one that she uses is the six second kiss. This is something that Doug's become a big fan of. <laughs> so I'll be like trying to get out the door because, you know, like that horrible peck on the cheek that you have, which is just so sexless. And you're like, oh, we just, used to- I feel <laughs> like my parents. <laughs> yeah, I know. But you do it all the time where you just come in, and you don't look at each other. So she talks about these things. But the biggest thing that I found so interesting about her is that she is obviously like a sex psychologist and she sees couples all the time. And she's like, if people come to her and they listen and they take it all on, it's a few sessions and they're done. They're out. It's not a massive issue that you have to go and really understand and spend, get, you know, dig back into it. Most of the time, obviously, I'm talking about couples who are just not doing it as much as perhaps they're used to or they'd like to. But the reassurance of that, again, from an expert of, it's okay if you don't, and here's some ways that you can get to that place. It's just, yeah. I had two pregnancies, by the way, from that episode that I know of. <laughs> Public service you're doing. Huh? How can She's that? incredible. I absolutely, this is one of those things that I just think, for fuck's sake, who is setting the agendas for both sex edge and NCT and all these really powerful intervention points that we have with, you know, not just mothers, but parents and beyond. And mm. we need to be talking about these conversations because like she said, the research has moved on significantly, but none of that has filtered down into, yeah. you know, you and I, I have no idea about this. And I love it when she says, we have this belief that good sex should just happen if you love yeah. each other. Yeah. And it's like, that is not true. And just knowing that is like, game changing because you think okay we don't have to get divorced we can get divorced about the mental load stuff but we don't have to get divorced to other stuff the bits that we talked about because it's quite an honest conversation but just that hyper vigilance right so when you know that they're giving you the come on so the sexual currency stuff that she talks about the key bit of it is that you do it as a couple when you have a longer kiss or you look at each other and you have a hug and it's with the understanding that that will isn't intentionally leading anywhere it might but that's the bit because i think that this education is massively lacking for men as well because what they do and i'm speaking for Doug but also i think it's most men <laughs> he'll love this but they'll give you the come on which is you know to touch your bum or you know going for a snog with the plan that that's going to go on to something so when they're doing that you know that that's what they're thinking and if you're thinking i'm not horny in any way at all you put up this barrier which is rejection because you're kind of trying to hide away quickly or you're watching telly and there's a really sexy scene on the telly and you just feel so uncomfortable because you're just thinking oh I know he's looking at this and thinking we should be doing that but I don't feel like it 
And what she's saying is that almost it's kind of double-edged because you push them away because you're still feeling so unsexy and not in that mood. But if you were to go that little bit further and you did have this, you know, more interaction going on between the two of you that isn't in search of sex, you would then have more sex. But we're just all doing it completely wrong because we don't know. We haven't had these conversations. No one had these conversations. We were told about sex when it was about not getting pregnant and STDs. And that was pretty much it, right? Yeah. I'm really introverted. So I never actually think, oh, I'm going to call my friend. My default position is to just sort of be an introvert. But I do. I schedule it in and I do it and I call my friends because I ultimately, the moment I put the phone down, I'm like, oh my God, thank God. That was so good. I feel so much better. And for me, <laughs> sex is the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I never yeah. think, do you know what? It's a Tuesday night, you know. But after we've done it, I always think the same thing. Yeah. That was really good. You know, like, that priority that I give to calling my friends, why am I not giving that same yeah. priority to a really important thing in my relationship? Yeah. So that's my little. <laughs> yeah, I think it's spot on. And you know what? I had a couple of messages as well. So with the clip where she's basically saying about how the mental load impacts your sex life, which of course it does. But again, yeah. it's that yeah. you're not relaxed. You're trying to get your head into that space. But also there's a million things like competing for that space. But I had messages from older women saying that don't worry, it gets better. And I loved that. Like women in their fifties, whose kids are older saying it comes back. So it's like, you might have this hiatus for 15 years, but don't worry, hang in there. But that was quite positive because again, you don't hear about older people having sex. Like that's a no, no. We don't want to think of your parents doing it. It's like, well, they must just stop. And actually probably in lots of cases they do. And that completely makes sense. Like, I love how you call this phase in our lives, like the rush hour. Like it's so mm. true. Like this is, I think, just the absolute, you know, it's such a good description of this phase. Mm. So that is also really good to know that maybe, you know, when we've booted the kids out, they might come back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash motherkind. Did you know Dr. Becky before? No, I didn't before I listened. I absolutely love the woman. She's just so concise. In fact, I think that's the running theme with all of these people. They are experts in what they talk about, but they're so concise. So it just feels very like, that's it, that's clear, that's factual. Well, all of them actually have a really clear mission. They have a really clear thing that they want to communicate Mm. and change. And Dr. Becky, if people don't know her, she's massive now. She's like into the millions on on Instagram and and beyond. She is a psychologist who specializes in parenting. See, I don't see it as parenting. I see more of what she talks about as reparenting. It's like what comes up for us as the parents when our kids are tantruming, screaming, and how we need to look after that first 
when I was listening to it, it's the fact that it starts to explain your own behavior as a parent and where that comes from. I think that helps you be a bit gentler with yourself because instead of thinking, God, I'm a dreadful mum, and I don't mean that we've inherited all our dreadful traits from our own parents, but it's like it's come from somewhere. It's like a shortcut to compassion, isn't it? Self-compassion mm. is, okay, I really react to that because that part was shut down when I was little. Like That makes complete sense I would react to that. But a lot of that might be generational as well. We grew up in the 80s, so parenting was different. So yeah, we want our kids to of have course, moved yeah. on, but we're still sometimes parenting as if we don't know what we definitely like what we know now exactly we're definitely all a product of our time as well shall i play the clip where she talks about selfless parenting we have to change this idea that parenting is about emptying yourself being selfless like bullshit nobody benefits from selfless parenting that is terrifying for an adult that is terrifying for a kid to have a selfless leader like each nobody wins and having a system and having resources and having support to actually take this from an idea into actionable steps i think number one is critical for all of our mental health i think number two is actually going to like change the world like i think it's revolutionary i really really do so i just love how she talks about this narrative and in the wider episode she talks about this idea that a lot of us mothers have inherited like you were touching on Steph before that the gold standard in mothering is essentially to forget about yourself to become a complete martyr to give to your partner family friends community and forget about yourself I think that's a lot of the deep conditioning that we are all trying to unravel within ourselves and she is really as you can hear in that clip super passionate super clear and it's all backed with you know her academia that that is one of the least helpful things that we can do for our children not only for ourselves but also for our children is to completely forget about ourselves she says we've got to find a way to resource ourselves she says if we're not resourced we can't parent in the way that we want to parent There's no growth. Like we can't grow as people. And also, what are we modeling? This is what I think about all the time. If I become a martyr and I definitely have that in me to do that, if I allow that, what am I teaching my girls about what it means to be a woman and a mother? And if I had a son, what would I be teaching him? It's like the best thing that I can do is get out that, you know, the episode I talk about leaving for this breathwork class and the girls go mental every time I do it. But I'm like, I'm doing this because... I can't be the parent that I want to be if I let myself get completely burnt out. I think that's one of the strongest things to take from those conversations that might work for us when if we're naturally in a place where we tend to beat ourselves up and put ourselves bottom and you might not be able to do this for yourself, but if you can think about your kids and show them, like stop worrying. There's a really good Glennon Doyle clip I've used before, which I'm sure you've seen, but it's like, stop worrying about them and how they're going to turn out and that you've got to get it right. If you can put yourself first and show them that you are a person with dreams and hopes and beliefs and passion, and she always uses the word juicy, right? So juicy, all that stuff, you will show them that they can also be that. And that is massive for when you're having those moments where you're just like, oh, I'll just do it and I'll just do everything. And oh, I feel so bad. It's like, but you're showing your kid that that's what they will should do at some point. The other thing that she said that really stuck in my head was about taking on other people's distress. So you started to say about when you left the house and you've left the kids crying and you take that on. She says that we compute it as guilt. 
But what we're actually doing is taking on people's distress because you shouldn't feel guilty, right? You're allowed to go to your class or I'm going to work or you're going for a date night, whatever it is, you're allowed to do those things. And they're part of your belief system that you do want to do those things. You don't need to feel guilty about doing them because if it was guilt, it's because you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. But she says that we take on other people's distress and that's not empathy. Empathy would be seeing someone else's experience, but because we don't have the boundaries, we take it on as distress. So she describes giving those feelings back. So she's like, put your hands out. (laughs) I just liked this and push it back. And the way she explained it, like, so say it's your partner's going like, fucking hell, you leave me with bath time and then you feel guilty. Or I had it the other day. I said, can you take the kids in the morning? Cause I want to go to the gym early. And he said, well, I took them yesterday. And I then spent the morning dicking about, making sure uniform was out, doing everything I could to make it easier for him. And then when he got back, because I then was listening again to Dr. Becky, when he got back, I was like, I'm taking on your distress. And he's like, what? I was like, because you said, oh, I did it yesterday. And he was like, well, that wasn't what I meant by that. And I was like, no, I know. But you saying that made me think that you didn't want to do it. So I'm taking this on. And then I'm like making myself late and cutting my workout time or whatever. And it was just really interesting to have that understanding of what was happening there. And I didn't need to feel guilty and I shouldn't have taken on that distress. And I needed to just go, thank you. I know it's a bit rubbish doing the school run or thank you. I know bath time can be a bit of a nightmare. I'm really grateful to you for doing it. And then you leave it. And then probably you'll have a conversation, which is the two of you going, oh my God, the kids are a nightmare. Rather than feeling that fucking livid rage. I love that she talked about it. I've used that loads actually since she said that. And that visual of, I think she said it, like a tennis court with a glass down the middle. And just imagine you're on one side and other people's distress about your actions can't get to you because they're not yours to take Mm. on. And she says all change is about particularly for mothers, our willingness to tolerate others' distress. Because so many people step in that situation when Doug said that would have gone, oh, don't worry about it. I'll do it. Because you were willing to take on his distress and still do it. Like a lot of people would have gone, oh God, I can't be bothered to have a moody husband for the day or whatever. So I'm just going to sack off the gym. So many mothers I know would have done that. So she says it's all about, we have to, as mothers, build up this willingness and ability, which is about regulation, to tolerate other people being pissed off with us in order to meet our own needs, Mm. including our kids. Laura Danger? Yeah. Yeah. So this is Laura Danger. So she is an amazing find. So someone I was wanging on about the mental load on Instagram and someone was like, oh, you need to follow this woman. So she's at that darn chat and TikTok, she's massive on and she's building this crazy momentum. But she is an ambassador for Eve Rodsky's Fair Play. Yeah, Fair Play has changed everything. Well, so Laura is like a more rough and ready, probably more relatable in some way, because Eve is really polished, right? Polished, it's very polished. Really polished. Whereas Laura is like, she's quite new to this, but she's also like going through it because she's got really small kids and she's going through it with her husband. So she talks about the mental load. So I'm going to play a clip first. And there's this idea that women magically have more time or they magically have the space but we're engineering it just the same way you show up for work and you say, okay, I've got 15 things I got to get done. I'm going to set deadlines, figure out how they're all going to get done. A lot of men are not adding the domestic stuff to that plate. They aren't seeing that those are also responsibilities that they can work in. And if both of you don't have time for it, 
then maybe you need to readjust your standards. Maybe you need to do less dishes. This is probably why divorce is so common for in our 40s, right? You've done the hard slog of the small kids, maybe. You start to realize you have a bit more headspace to go, I used to be somebody, I used to have thoughts and passions and all that stuff. And I've put them to the back burner for a while. And now I want to find them again. And if your partner is in no way encouraging, but also is stopping you because they want to keep you in that place, in that role that you've been doing, and you're saying to them, hang on a minute, I feel like I'm ready now to do whatever it is. And I want to get back to work, make some decisions, whatever it is. And they just are completely unwilling to engage. What do you do? And so I think lots of people probably just sit on it, miserable, but sit on it. And then those that don't maybe have to head down the route of getting divorced and stuff. I think it must be so fundamental to so many relationships that don't work. And it's just the difference of whether your partner goes, yeah, I feel like I've been really lucky because I don't, it could have gone either way. Doug has really engaged in all this. And the, this is where the podcast has really helped me because he read Dr. Karen's book. He read Matt Frey's book, who we're going to talk about. He's reading all these books and he's going, fuck, there's this revolution happening where women, and it isn't, it shouldn't be a revolution, but where women are going, no, do you know what? I actually don't want to be put into that role and I have more to give. And if men don't, change to make things more fair and all that stuff, then they'll be on their own probably in lots of cases. And there's loads of people talking about that as well, which is absolutely fascinating about the next thing we'll start to see is lots of men, just like Matt Frey, who we'll talk about in a minute, sort of sat there, partners have left them going, what happened? You know, because I like to think just like Matt Frey talks about, which we will show in a minute, is that this isn't done from a place of like malice. This is done from a place of complete unconsciousness. And I think it is generational. And I know we're talking about mainly sort of heteronormative and men, but that's the way that this dynamic often gets set up. I know lots of friends, they've split up for all these exact reasons. And then the partner ends up having to be a better dad, be more present, go to parents' evenings, sharing all this stuff because they have them every other weekend or whatever it is. And you're like, so you're going to have to do it anyway. But it took the divorce to get to that. I think you're right in this clip. You know, I loved it when you use that word courage, because for sure, like for me, saying to Guy, we need to talk about you know, the way that we divide things up does take courage because you're like, I don't know how this is going to go. It could be like an absolute shit show and then what? I think I've tried to have that conversation so many times when the kids were younger, but I didn't fully understand what was going on. I just felt really angry. So the way I would have said it would have been completely different to how I could say it now, which is to say, can we look at this and be much more calm about it and point out some stuff and be able to say, this isn't an equal relationship if we keep going like this. And I think that's where all these podcasts, and there's loads across all of the mother kind podcasts that goes into that. So if you have that understanding, because it's not going to happen straight away, right? It's almost like you've got to get your head to the place. So for example, let's take the example of when you say, oh, my husband helped by emptying the dishwasher. It's just a casual sentence, right? But the language is he's helping you because it's your job. You are the default dishwasher emptier. And we talk about that in the podcast. And I was like, shit, like we do that all the time. It's not enough that they help us a bit more. And again, going back to what we grew up with, 
a lot of the stuff that our partners are doing now, probably they would have been heralded as like gods in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they get praised for it. So then it kind of gets perpetuated. Whereas I'm looking at it going, no, I want actual equality. (laughs) I think it's about how you have the conversation, isn't it? You know, no conversation is going to go well if you start off with a defensive attacking, you know, this isn't working. It's just never going to work. The way that I coach sometimes and definitely try to do it, Guy and I do, and we've got quite good at this now, is like it's me and him on the same team against a problem. Yeah. So we are on the same team and the problem that we face is the just shit ton of stuff that needs doing around mm-hmm. running two businesses and having two girls in a house and da, 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 da. how are we going to figure this out? Mm-hmm. And that is like such a simple mindset shift as opposed to like you're the problem because you're just going to get a defensive. <laughs> you're not going to get anything. Going back to that whole thing about being afraid, I think women, sometimes we get together and it's easy to slag off the men for being a bit useless. And it's probably safer in some ways because you're afraid going back to that point of how do you actually tackle that? Because if he doesn't agree, if he doesn't see this, if he doesn't even acknowledge it and go, yeah, you're right. I should do a drop off or a pickup or whatever that is. Where does that leave you? So sometimes it's easier to gather with your mates and sit around and just slag them off, but it doesn't resolve it in any way. I think as well, it's having the conversation, which is what Laura talks about. And then you're going to get some information right? And Mm. with that information, you get to then make another decision. She asked that question, can I live with this reality? And for Mm. a lot of people, it might be like, yes, I can for these reasons, or I'm not in the place where I want to do this, or I want to make a massive change. But at least you've got that information. You're not unconscious to the dynamics that are going on anymore. Mm. And, you know, maybe you make a plan and maybe you get your support system outside of the marriage, whatever it looks like. But I think having that information and knowing where your partner is at is important to know. Right, Matt Frey. Yeah, our favourite guy. I found him through the blog post he wrote back, in, I think it was 2016, which was, my wife divorced me because I left yeah. my dishes by the sink. And he explains all of that. But this was a real eye-opener, but in particular for Doug, I would say. Like it was really reassuring for me to try and help me understand what was happening in Doug's head when we had these various rows. Yeah, I think that's why he's done so well, because there's one thing, you know, a woman going on about this, but I think having a guy who's been through this experience, who's done clearly a lot of unpacking and reflection and now is an amazing communicator, but it's a completely different ball game. It's fascinating to me, like a podcast for women and mothers and my top three episodes ever are all from men. And Mm. I think there's something about hearing the validation from a man that it's a very real like condition in families and relationships that mothers and the labor of love that they offer every single day is invisible to so many people. And I think that mothers will forgive their children. And I think it's really, really, really difficult to forgive their adult partners when they essentially do the same things that their children are doing in the context of like taking it for granted and making life harder for mom. Isn't that amazing? So he's basically saying, you give so much to your kids. And until they become parents themselves, I don't think you really get the sacrifice of what it is like. I wrote my mum a letter, actually, when I became a mum, basically saying thank you. But I don't think you get that. And I think what he's saying is you forgive that of your children. But to forgive that of your life partner who does not see the sacrifice and the daily, not just the mental load, but the emotional load 
mm. of what it is like to mother presently and to mother well and you know all that stuff I just love that he says that is something that's really really hard to come back from and, and I love how he talks about really what good marriage is about is what I understood from all of his work was that it's love in action he was like I married the woman clearly I love her he just says I forgot to show her in my actions every day I loved her and in fact, my actions were showing the opposite, that I didn't love her because she told me that the socks and the dishes were important and I thought they weren't. So I just ignored her. So this is your Matt clip. I believe in the idea that comfortable people aren't inclined to change. When we're comfortable, we want to maintain the status quo because of how comfortable it is. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to discuss comfort globally, I think in an intellectually fair way, we have to talk about the idea of how straight white men are pretty comfortable. <laughs> yeah. People get so, I mean, his, particularly this side of, of the Atlantic, people are oh, really? particularly offended by if they grew up impoverished with parents that didn't you know, support them getting an education and there wasn't a lot of money and they worked hard to get where they were. Yeah, they're really offended by it. And they mm -hmm. fail to understand that this idea of, of white privilege or male privilege, it's not suggesting your life was easy. It's not an insult. It's saying your life isn't harder because of your gender. Your life isn't harder because of your skin color. Mm -hmm. And other people don't have that luxury. And I just think there's value in being aware of it and preferably caring about it. That's a really difficult one. How do you approach that with a bloke? Because I guess the issue with privilege, whether it's male privilege, white privilege, the person who is in the privilege doesn't really want anything to change because it makes their life harder. That is the privilege, isn't it? Is that you're unconscious to the forces that are at play that are making your life easier. And I've said it a few times, but now we're having all these conversations. Doug is like, yeah, my life's harder to be a good partner. And I think that without conversations yeah. where men understand that, that they'd be like, why, why would I do that? And I think that that is a huge conversation that is quite complicated to try and engage your partner in. But once they get it, I think it's almost core to any of this conversation. Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is linked as well to us as the mother, woman, partner feel is valid and okay. Mm. But you're right, it needs a lot of unpacking. These are massive, massive conversations mm. that are not only present now, they're generational. We are so impacted by what's happened generationally. So I think they are massive, massive conversations and well, definitely need unpacking on our side first. When you talk about throughout your podcast about your worth and all those things. And I think sometimes somebody who's not engaged might be like, oh, all right, it all sounds a bit. And then it's like, no, it's really just to figure out what is acceptable to you, what is okay exactly. to you. Exactly. And that's what lots of mothers that I work with, we untangle together. That is how change starts to happen, really, with us. And that's not putting the problem on us at all. It's the opposite. It's empowering us to be like, what am I doing? Because remember, we can't actually change someone else. We can create the conditions for change. Like I'm sure Matt's ex-wife tried thousands of times, but we can't get them to see. We can't get them to change. The only place we have any power is with us, right? So it's like, what am I doing that's contributing to this dynamic? What am I doing? What can I 
change. I think that's where it's by far more empowering to start at that place and then be like, okay, here's what's going to change. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 